morning. You guys doing well? So, good to have you with us. Um, I tweeted yesterday, uh, Psalm 8410, actually kind of my version of it, and this is what I put down. I said, better is one day in your presence than a thousand in San Diego at 78 degrees. You know, do you believe that? Better is one day in your presence than a thousand elsewhere. That, that's even San Diego at 78 degrees. When you've got him in your life, your worst day is durable. Your best day is livable. If you have him, he's enough. And uh, that's what we've been really discovering through the book of Acts. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to knock out this chapter. It's a short chapter. Verses 1 through 15, How It Changes Everything, Vital Church is the title of this weekend's message. The book of Acts could be summed up like this. It is about the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the hearts and the lives of the people of God, making an impact in this world for God. People of God? Yes. It's not about steeples, but about... Peoples. Okay, that sounds a little corny, I know. I know, but it's very true. It's extremely true. What is the most important thing that God is up to on this planet Earth? Whatever it is, I want to be right in the middle of it. Well, we know what it is. Jesus made it very clear, 16th chapter of Matthew. He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And it was one of the few times uh, before the cross that Peter said profound a profound thing. Because most of the time, as you well know, Peter was putting his foot in his mouth saying some pretty ridiculous stuff. But he did say something very profound after he said, well, this is what people say that you are, who you are. And he went to this whole whole list of uh, titles and names. But then Jesus turned to them and said, but who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Upon this, I will build my church. Upon this statement, upon those who who claim and put faith in this statement, in this person, in me, in essence, those who put their faith in me as Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail. So what what is God up to? God is, it's called ecclesia, church, calling out those who are saying, Christ, you are the Son of the living God. We give our lives to you. And he is bringing those folks together, building his church so that we can push back the forces of darkness, so that we can kick down the gates of hell. The word is used 115 times in the New Testament. The word church, ecclesia, called out ones. 115 times in the New Testament, now listen to this, in which 92 times out of the 115, it refers to local congregations like Desert Breeze. There's not a better life investment or a more exciting adventure this side of heaven than to be a part of the people of God, a local church like Desert Breeze, that is beholding His beauty, reflecting His glory, and redeeming people's lives for all eternity. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that that's what God is up to. That is what He's up to. And the church, though, the greatest force on this planet Earth, I believe, for life change, because of the gospel message, is certainly far from perfect. 
And the least place that shows up is bulletin bloopers. I've got a few right here. Let me read to you a couple bulletin bloopers. It's just to kind of loosen you up a little bit here this morning. 118 degrees yesterday broke a record. I was hoping it would break that last big record of 122, huh? You guys remember that one? Yeah, so pretty, pretty hot out there. But here's some bulletin bloopers that I thought were pretty kind of funny. They kind of show, kind of show one aspect of uh, the imperfect uh, church. Even as you could tell, we were very imperfect this morning with our PowerPoint. Who was on that PowerPoint over there? You are really messed up, man. It wasn't his fault. Actually, for some reason, we got a mix-up in some of the songs. and So I, I think Scott's taking care of that for the second service. You have to come back. So the songs will just flow perfectly in every way from the PowerPoint. But here's, here's a couple uh, bloopers. Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. Thursday night potluck supper, prayer and medication to follow. Meditation. Remember in prayer the many who are sick of our church and community. I think they meant in our church and community. For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. This afternoon there will be a meeting in the south and north ends of the church. Children will be baptized at both ends. That's weird. It's Tuesday at 4 p.m. There will be an ice cream social. All ladies giving milk, please come early. That's messed up. I'm not sure if I want any of that ice cream. Um, Thursday at 5 p.m. There will be a meeting of the Little Mothers Club. All wishing to become Little Mothers, please see the minister in his private study. Right there, that's the cause of all the, all the church's problems. Right there. This being Easter Sunday, we will ask Mrs. Lewis to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. Got a few more. A bean supper will be held on Tuesday evening in the church hall. Music will follow. At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, What is hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. That's messed up. Okay. Weight Watchers will meet at 7 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church. Please use large double door at the side entrance. That's rude. Here's a couple more. Pastors on vacation. Massages can be given to church secretary. I think they meant messages. Um, The senior choir invites any member of the congregation who enjoys sinning to join the choir. I'll join. Can't sing, but I can sin. Uh, Scouts are saving aluminum cans, bottles, and other items to be recycled. Proceeds will be used to cripple children. Here's my last one. The associate minister unveiled the church's new campaign slogan last Sunday. I upped my pledge, up yours. <laughs> so there you have it. Okay, little blo- bulletin bloopers just to remind us that there's no church perfect. We're going to talk about that as we work through this. But so here's the couple questions we're looking at this morning. What makes for a healthy church? If we're talking about the church, and if that's the most important thing God is up to on this planet Earth... Local churches like Desert Breeze Community Church. What makes for a healthy church? What makes for a vital church? What makes for a healthy Christian a vital Christian? 
What do you look for before making a commitment to the church? Is there some sort of criteria that you should be aware of? And is it possible for a church to give the appearance of health and yet be unhealthy? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's where we're headed. Sixth chapter of Acts. We'll read through that in just a moment. But let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? God, thank you for laughter. Thank you that it is like medicine. It tells us in Proverbs. And, and knowing you, experiencing you certainly brings laughter to our lives and brings joy to our hearts. And so, Father in heaven, uh, all of those like Peter in Matthew 16 who confess Jesus as Christ, the Son of the living God, become a part of the greatest entity on earth for life change, the church. And Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail. So teach us this morning, your people, how we can get better at kicking down the gates of hell through, through the beholding of your beauty the reflecting of your glory and seeing more and more people's lives redeemed for all eternity. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's take a look at our text. I'll read completely through this chapter. So hang in there with me. I'll try not to you know, bring too much commentary as we read through it, and then I'll bring most of my commentary at the end as we work through. I think there's like eight big, big points as it relates to answering this question, a vital church. So, starting at chapter 6, verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews. Uh, The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. The Hebrews were Hebrew-speaking Jews. And so there's this complaint because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Who's the we here? It's the apostles. It would be classified as the elders, the general oversight. So that's what they're going to focus on, and so they're going to choose those that would be classified. The word really has to do with deacon, those that would serve. Deacons, deaconesses, that's where we get that word. It's in here where they'll serve. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and... Uh, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So you're going to kind of see that they went to the people and said, okay, you guys choose from among you people that would fit within these categories. You present them to us as the elders, and then we will decide whether or not we'll lay our hands on them, make that kind of final appointment. It's kind of important to see that progress in this so they, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. So this strategy helped to uh, create this synergy within the church so that the gospel continued to be proclaimed. And, 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 and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith, which is phenomenal. I mean, so you got people from other faiths, other religions, the Hebrew priests, Jewish uh, priests who are converting to Christianity. 
There's such a powerful impact that's happening on this community. And now we get into the story of Stephen. So it kind of focuses in on Stephen. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, and of Cyrenians and of Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. What he was saying, and we're going to see this later on next week, in Stephen's speech, in his uh, sermon, is that he's saying, hey, we don't need the temple anymore. We can go right to God through Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's just saying that Jesus is the mediator, and by him we can have access to the throne room of God. We can know God personally. That's what he's saying. So it's pretty profound what he's saying. And yet they're saying, hey, he's speaking against the temple. He's speaking against Moses and all these other things, and no, that's not actually true. Of course, they, they conjured that, that all up and stirred it all up. For we have heard him say that, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Well, Jesus did say that he would destroy that temple, or that temple would be destroyed. And what he was talking about was his temple, his body, that he would be sacrificed on the cross, and that through the cross we would have access to the throne room of God, meaning that we don't need the temple. We don't need priests. Jesus is our high priest. And then gazing at him, so they're all gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So something powerful that's happening in his life as, he's, as they are confronting him. And, and actually what we're going to see the rest of the story here is that they, they take him out and they, they stone him. They kill him. So it's a phenomenal story. You'll have to come back next week for the rest of that story. But let's talk about the church because that's, that's what the focus of chapter 6 is. So a vital church. Number one, not about making converts but disciples. And, and we really get that. There's three places in this, in this chapter. Verse 1, when the disciples were increasing. So he uses that word. It's the second time in verse 2. They summoned the full number of disciples. And then verse 7, the number of disciples multiplied greatly. You guys remember the last words of Jesus before he ascended to heaven? I mean, you can kind of, if you study the different gospel accounts and then in the book of Acts, well, one particular place, Matthew, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the last command Jesus gave the church before he ascended to heaven is classified as the Great Commission. Great Commission. Dallas Willard, uh, he's written a book, he calls it the Great Omission because he believes much of the church has has kind of aborted that mission. We we might be good, many churches are good at making converts, but not making disciples. We've, we've gotten, and there's a number, and, and, they, and they actually fit in kind of one or, one or two percent range, the mega churches that are in our society today. And, uh, but he's saying overall, most churches aren't really about disciple making, but it's more about uh, converts. So what does it mean to be a disciple? And, and my question for you would be, are you a disciple? Are you just a convert? Major difference. Jesus said that that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what Desert Breeze is to be about. We're to be about making disciples, and it only makes good sense that, uh, that I should be a disciple first and foremost before I can help others to become 
disciples. Uh, so let me give you a definition of that as I was doing research on that. This word disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament. So it's you know, certainly a pretty important word. And this is what it means. It is an apprentice, a learner, or a pupil. In ancient times of the Bible, a disciple was a person who, now listen to me, a disciple was a person who left everything that they had to follow the teachings of a master. And I emphasize they left everything. It wasn't that they just kind of added Jesus to the pile. He's just a part of my life, or he was a means to an end. No, disciple means, no, he is the end. He is everything. He's at the center of my life. That would be the idea of a disciple. The word disciple implies much more than learner or pupil. It is someone who has totally committed his or her life to the training and teaching of a master or a school of thought. So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, what is the best uh, definition for this? And it would be Matthew 13, 44. For me... He says, I think about my own life as a disciple because this is really kind of a life verse for me. You guys familiar with it? It goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So a guy's walking through a field. So it's kind of, it's a parable that Jesus told. It says, this is what the kingdom of God is about. Those who are really disciples, those who are followers of Jesus, those who come into the kingdom, it's like a man who is walking in a field and he kind of stubs his toe and he looks and it's a treasure. He is so blown away by this treasure. He is so captivated by this treasure. He goes home and sells everything. It's almost like, okay, well, how, much, how much is it going to cost to buy this field? Uh, $200,000. Okay, so he goes home. $200,000. Okay, I can sell my, my house. I can sell my car. I can sell my, my kids. Yeah, I'll sell my kids too. And uh, my wife. And I mean, he's thinking about anything. And, everything. and literally it says he, he sells it all. He gets rid of everything. Everything so that he can purchase the field to have the treasure. I use that as my life verse because that's what happened to me. As I begin to be smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, I begin to realize that much of what I was pursuing and kind of hanging on to and clinging to was really worthless in comparison. See, that's what, that's what discipleship is. Here's a couple things that I wrote down that just kind of helped me to walk through this. Discipleship is a, is a magnificent obsession with a heavenly treasure besides which everything else in life is of no value. It is a fantastic fascination with a heavenly treasure, Jesus, beside which everything else in life is of no value. See, a convert changes his faith, but not his heart. Disciples are zealous for Jesus. Being a convert is about fire insurance. You guys know what I'm talking about, fire insurance? Some of you? Yeah, okay, I don't want to go to hell. So I'll cross the line, I'll sign the card, I'll get dunked in the tank, I'll come forward for prayer, whatever. And yet that's the extent of your relationship with God. It's not this magnificent obsession with a heavenly treasure. So... Being a convert is about fire insurance. Being a disciple is about being fired up, about following and adoring the one who ensures our eternal life through the cross. See, a disciple is free to give up everything they have because in Christ they have everything they need. Anybody but a fool would give up everything to purchase that field, to gain that treasure. When you see what you have in Jesus, you begin to say, wait a minute. See, it's not a matter of renunciation as much as it is of re-evaluation. 
That's the Christian life. You begin to evaluate. You begin to say, wait a minute. I'm pursuing all of this stuff, and this doesn't even come close to who Jesus is. That's the Christian life. That's discipleship. And uh, there's been such a heavy emphasis on this whole idea of conversion that, you know, that oftentimes people think that once they... Uh, ooh, you can really hear me now, can't you? Some of you woke up. Woo! Um, once, once they cross the line or they've said the prayer, then, hey, I'm in, and then they kind of go off and pursue whatever they want to pursue after that. That's not... And so I would really question whether or not you're even a Christian if that's the case. And so there's this really distinctiveness between this idea of uh, being a convert and a disciple. Discipleship will cost you. It will cost you. Discipleship will cost you, but non-discipleship will cost you more. Oh, 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 so much more, so much more. Abiding peace, sustaining power in His satisfying presence. By the way, when when you're looking out about for a church... Hopefully you found one by being here, but, you know, if maybe if you leave this church, we've had people leave and look elsewhere. Beware of MD, M, MTD, MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's, it's something that's very much a part of our, our society. Much, many churches today are teaching a form of moralistic therapeutic deism. A guy by the name, of, he's a sociologist, Christian Smith, in his book Soul Searching and subtitled The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers and I think also American Adults. This is what, what, how he would define it. Moralistic, God blesses and takes to heaven those who live good and decent lives. That's what's being taught in a lot of churches. Just be good. God will take you to heaven. You want to go to heaven, don't you? Be good. And then this idea of therapeutic, the central goal of life is not sacrifice or to deny oneself, but to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Because, hey, life is about you. It's all about you. Well, that's our society. It's not the Bible because it isn't about you. It's about God and His glory. But that's being taught in our churches, this therapeutic kind of making much of you as opposed to making much of God. And then this deism is that though God exists and created the world, he does not need to be particularly involved in our lives except when there's a problem. He becomes a means to an end rather than the end and the focal point of our lives. That's very common. I mean, within driving distance of this church right here, you drive here and you can go to churches, and that's, this is what they're teaching. Most people don't even know. They'll attach a couple verses to it to make you feel like it's Bible, but it's moralistic therapeutic deism. It's about you and not about God. It's not about you coming into the presence of God and being wowed about God. It's more about how can God serve you so you can be all you can be. That's not the gospel. So just be smart. Just because it's a big church doesn't mean that, it, that they're doing what the Bible teaches. Americans are so gullible. And so just be aware. That's the first. I spent time on that, didn't I? Let's hit the next one. We'll spend a little time on that, and then we'll kind of, the next few will pick up pace a little bit. So vital church is, is not about making converts but disciples, and, and not a perfect church but a healthy church. And we can see this. This is the first century church. And we got the fifth chapter. We just dealt with hypocrisy within this church. And in chapter 6, verse 1, what do we see? We got people complaining because there's others being neglected. There's no perfect church, by the way. Did you know that? If you're looking for the perfect church, it doesn't exist. And even if you did find it, please don't join it because you'll just wreck it. Okay? 
Now, here's one of my favorite. Uh, Here's one of my favorite quotes, and I don't know where I got this. I actually got it from Charles Colson in a book, and I don't remember exactly. He didn't, I don't know if he had it, had it actually uh, stated who quoted it, but the church is a lot like Noah's Ark. The stench on the inside would be unbearable if it wasn't for the storm on the outside. Still the best thing going. There's a storm out there. It's a safe place to be. And man, it really smells sometimes in here. All those animals. And that's the idea of that. That's the idea of that. Every church has its share of problems. And the, and the more notable issue of a church, when you get involved in a church, they're gonna, every church is going to have problems the closer you get in. But the more notable issue is how do they deal with their problems? Now, it's interesting. They were complaining. I looked up that word complain. In the Greek, it means, did you see that? Verse 1, they were complaining. Murmur, murmuring, muttering, a secret debate. A secret displeasure not openly avowed. So you hear what's happening? So these, uh, these Hellenists, these Greek-speaking Jews, are just kind of talking among themselves. And, hey, they're ripping us off over there. Hey, what's going on? This isn't right. So they're complaining, but the way that they're dealing with their problem is wrong. It's called gossip. I don't like what this church is doing. They don't like their music. I don't like the way Pastor Ray does this or that. Or That's what they're doing. They're talking at this level rather than to take their problems to the leadership. We'll talk about that in just a moment because that's what, what ultimately we learn from this. And so the, the idea here, let me give you the definition, muttering a secret debate, a secret displeasure not openly avowed. They had a legitimate problem because people were being neglected but we're going about it in an illegitimate way. And the Bible says a lot about complaining. Let me just give you some verses here. Oh boy, thank you, Pastor Ray. You're welcome. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, it says, Do not grumble. Uh, Philippians 2.14, it says, Do everything without complaining and arguing. Galatians 5.14-15 says, The entire law is summed up in a single word. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So that kind of complaining and divisiveness, uh, it, it eventually will devour you and devour those that are around you. And so, what should they have done? Matt Trusella, who's uh, chairman of our board of elders, I, I believe is one of the smartest men as it relates to relationships and the dynamics of relationships. I really do. And so he has taught us in our board of elders along with many of our leaders that when you have an issue, don't vent down, always vent up. Don't vent down to other followers because that would be considered gossip. Gossip is anything when you bring information to someone that that person is neither part of the solution nor part of the problem. That you're just kind of sharing this information. It's kind of useless. You shouldn't be sharing it, but you're just doing that because you're stirring it up. But he actually teaches you should vent up. So you go to the appropriate people and say, hey, you know, the music is a little bit loud or this is that. You know, or Pastor Ray, you know, when he said that, I think he offended a few folks. Or, But you talk to the leadership. You go to the leadership. That's totally appropriate. I have an open door. I'm open to, to sit down with anybody. Our elders, if you have a problem with me and you can't resolve it through me, you go to the elders because they can fire me. We'll talk a little bit more about that too. And I'm the founding pastor of this church and I set it up that way, which is another sign of healthiness, I think, within a church structure. But there's got to be this openness where we can share our thoughts and things. And, and a lot of times, and what you've got to keep in mind too is that you take your concerns to the leaders with humility, honesty, and honor. You honor them. 
and you're humble about your own shortcomings and feelings and, and you're honest about your own feelings, but you honor them. And what you're going to find out is that it might be an oversight. It could be a resource challenge. It could be maybe a, a difference of, of vision. Well, let me just say that you'll always be warmly welcome to come and bring your, your uh, struggles, your difficulties, your concerns to any of us as leaders. I, I want you to feel safe to be able to do that. I think that's important. But don't vent down. Vent up. Bring it to the leadership. My heart, you know my heart. I want everybody to, to know Jesus. I want everybody to experience life in Him. And if there is something that I'm doing or anybody else is doing that would prevent that, man, let's, let's work together. And I have to say that our church is really pretty good at that, to be quite honest with you. But this is just kind of, just to remind us. I think for the most part, you know, I think everybody's pretty, pretty healthy as it relates to that. So, you know, keep, keep doing that. Keep up the good work. And in doing that... Um, it's interesting here, too. Let me give you a couple thoughts before we move on. Jesus, and always keep this in mind as you kind of look at the, unhe- at, the, at the imperfections of the church and what is a healthy church. Healthy church just deals with the issues at hand. But Jesus doesn't love his bride, the church, because she is lovable, but in order to make her lovable. Always remember that. And it's our hearts being smitten by his sacrificial love is what transforms us into lovable people. And by the way, it also helps us to not to be consumers anymore. We don't become consumers. The church is filled with consumers. The the church in America, because we're consumers. Let's talk a little bit about this. Consumers versus a covenant relationship. What are the three uh, places in your life that you are supposed to have covenant relationship as as opposed to a consumer relationship? Anybody? What are the three, three areas of life that you should have a covenant relationship as opposed to a consumer? Yell it out to me real quick. Marriage, okay. Would, how about parenting? Would that be a good place to have covenant relationship? Okay, one more time, John, and you're out of the house. Now, you need to have a, a kind of covenant for the most part, unless he's you know, 50 years old and you need to throw him out. But, uh, but, uh, or maybe you don't. I don't know. That's the, between you and him and how you work that out. But, but there, there's covenant relationship in marriage, parenting, A, yeah, the church, yes, the church, the church, covenant, yeah. Most people don't know that. And you, you, could, you should see the people that come and go here. People that get involved in leadership and then they're gone and I'm calling them up saying, hey, what happened? Well, we just found a better deal down the street. What? Sounds like consumer to me. You had responsibilities over here. You made a commitment. You didn't even bother to tell anybody that you were leaving. You know how many times that happens in a church? In this church, it's happened? Isn't that amazing? It blows my mind. It just, it's just crazy. And so consumers make... Now think about this. Consumers make their needs as more important than the relationship. Covenant... People that understand covenant, the relationship is always more important than their personal needs. Does that make sense? If you want your marriage to go, you've got to have that kind of covenant. And there's not a better kind of relationship because that's the kind of relationship God has with us. And then we offer that in our marriage relationship and then in parenting and then we do that in church. There's a real safety and a security to that. So if church is a, is a covenant relationship, then your reasons for leaving a church should be serious rather than superficial. I mean, there's certainly reasons. Last week I Twittered and I put on there for someone if you wanted to follow up on this. And if you're interested, you can email me and I can send it to you. But kind of the reasons for leaving a church. What are appropriate reasons? 
In fact, you can go to Gospel Coalition and type in there, when is it time to leave? And there's a, there's a guy, I think it's uh, Kevin DeYoung actually has a post on there where he talks about that. And so, I mean, there should be reasons such as uh, um, heresy, immorality, chronic distrust, calling. God can certainly call you, just to name a few. So here, here's the bottom line as it relates to the church and the church's imperfections. I know that there have been people that have been really hurt by the church. I have too. But I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But if you truly love Jesus, you'll eventually love his bride. In fact, if you truly love Jesus, you'll eventually love his bride, the church. You can't walk in vital union with Jesus and despise the one he gave his life to. You can't. I know people out there that they call themselves Christians and yet they say, I hate the church. That'd be like you coming to me and saying, hey, I like you, Ray, but I hate your wife. How do you think I'm going to respond? I'm going to probably choke you out, man. I'm going to work you over because I love my bride. I love my wife. Don't say, don't you, you could talk bad about me, but don't talk about my bride. I will work you over. And we'll work you over. So, John uh, 2.17, Jesus, it says that he, uh, you know, remember when Jesus went in there and turned over the tables? Went over there and stirred things up, had a a whip, whipped people in the temple? And his disciples remembered an Old Testament verse and they actually quoted John 2.17, zeal for your house will consume me. So his zeal, cross, for his church, us, bride, makes us together zealous for him in displaying his glory. So, so I mean, so if you're looking for a healthy church, certainly it's got to be about discipleship. It's got to be the fact that, yeah, they have problems, but they're willing to deal with those issues. But they have a passion for the Savior and wanting to put on display his glory through their unity and their harmony as they work through that. Okay, here's the next one. Here's the next one. I'm going to bypass that video that I was going to show there. Because we just flat out almost run out of time. So I'm just going to slow the pace down just a little bit more. Because these next points go pretty quick. Number three is balanced in word and deed. So a healthy church or a vital church is balanced in word and deed. And so you got that in verse 2 in our text. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching and the word to serve. That's where we get the word deacon right there, the word serve. So you get the deacons to serve tables. And by the way, they're not saying that we're, that's below us. No, that's, a, that's something that needs to be taken care of. But we have been called and we have responsibility to continue to do this. And yes, we need to have others that will do that. That's all important is what they're saying. That's, that's important. So what they're saying is word and deed. Yes, it's important people's needs are being met, that there's deeds being done, but we need to maintain the, the integrity of preaching God's Word. And here's what happens, the preaching of the full counsel of God's Word. By the way, when you look for a church, you look for the preaching of the full counsel of God's Word. Most pastors, I'm just banging on other churches, and, but this is typical. I download a lot of different messages out there and follow a lot of different guys, and there's some really good guys, and there's some really messed up guys out there. Welcome to the church world. And a lot of them do what is known as proof texting. 
Proof texting is they're not going to teach the full counsel of God's Word. My goodness sakes, that doesn't attract folks. So they're going to hit their pet topics because that's what makes them happy and makes their people happy. Rather than to do the hard work of what we typically do, and we work through the book of the Bible. It's going to take us the rest of the year to work through the book of Acts. I've talked to guys that say, oh no, we just, like three, four weeks, six weeks, you lose people's attention, you've got to jump to another topic. No, we're making disciples here. We want people to get focused and learn how to study God's Word. But see, that's not the trend. In fact, if you go to most, most church uh, growth conferences, they would say, ooh, don't teach the book like what you guys are doing. Yeah, but we're trying to make disciples, okay? We're not just trying to make converts and try to make everybody happy and just attract crowds. So you need to go to a church that actually teaches this book and not just makes their point and then attaches a verse to it, which is called proof texting. It's rampant in our society today. Most people go, oh, look at that, it's biblical. It's biblical. No, it isn't. Did they tell you what that scripture said or did they just attach it to their idea to try to prove what they, the point that they were making? Think, think, think about what you're listening to. Think about what's going on. And so the preaching of the full counsel of God's word produces faith. When you come out of here on Sunday mornings, you should have faith that's soaring. You have seen Jesus. You have encountered him. You want him more than anything. And then you're going to go out and do what? You're going to do good deeds in his name. So you got the teaching of God's word should produce good deeds in his name. And as you do good deeds in his name, it will turn heads towards your ability to be able to speak into those people's lives, the preaching or the teaching of God's word. So you can see the connection there. So God's word opens us up. We want more of Jesus. He transforms our lives. And then we go out and do good deeds. And then those people's lives open up. They go, wow, he does love us. Look how these people are treating us. Look how much they love us. Who is this that you're following? We want to know him too. So that's how that works. So it's got to be a church that's balanced in word and deed. By the way, the deeds fall, flow out of, out of your life and your heart that's filled up with God's word and having encountered him. So, and I gave you a bunch of verses there you can look at. Uh, but so word ministry leads to deed ministry and deed ministry leads to word ministry when when you separate you've got hypocrisy so if you're just here just checking the box studying the bible and it's not changing your life there's hypocrisy going on it goes along with the five g's here desert breeze full devotion to jesus christ genuine christian first g someone who's made a commitment to christ into a church family so that would be that comes as a result of word word so you hear the word, you see Jesus, you want him, you make that public through water baptism. And then the second G, growing Christian, is you want to grow in the word and understanding of who this Jesus is so he transforms you. So if you're genuine, you'll be growing. If you're growing, then you'll be giving, giving Christian, third G, and a going Christian. You're going to tell the world, and you're going to do all four of those all to the glory of God because you realize that life is not about you. It's about him and making him known through your life. So word, this is what I found in my own life, that word ministry helps, helps me, helps us to see that in Christ we have all the love we need, therefore freeing us to love even our enemies with no strings attached and possibly softening our enemies' hearts to hear the gospel message. Do you have any idea how much he loves you? Are you living in the reality of that love? And are you just, when you come to church, is it like a bucket? You're just putting it under the fountain of his love and you just go, oh, 
I want to know you, God. And then you take it out throughout the week and just pour it out on everybody in your life and your family. See, that's, that's the idea. Word, deed needs to be balanced. If it's not balanced, there's hypocrisy. So here's number four. Led by Jesus Christ through a plurality of leaders known as elders and deacons. And, and that's really what we've got going on here in this, this study. Is that you've got the elders and then they're appointing some deacons. But it's about Jesus. I believe in a plurality of leadership. There's, there's many churches that I would not be a part of because it's not a plurality of leadership. It's a CEO-run church. The, the, the head pastor basically calls all the shots. He's not accountable to anybody. There's plenty of that in America today, and it's one of the reasons why a lot of these guys crash and burn because there's no accountability. So when we established this church, I'm the founding pastor, we established a, a board of elders. They were not hand-picked men, but they were selected by the people within our congregation. And as we kind of looked at these guys and looked at their lives and made sure that they fit the qualifications as established in 1 Timothy 3, that's 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13. I think it's on your notes. You might want to correct that. Titus 1, 5 through 9, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. And so those are the guys that really, this, they have the general oversight. If there's ever an issue, you, you talk to them. You can go on our website and find out who they are. And then we've got many deacons and deaconesses in our church that do a lot of service and a lot of work. So much of what goes on here is really kind of below the, the water level, so to speak. You just get a chance to see the tip of the iceberg here on weekend services. But, but led by Jesus Christ. Here's what my job is. My, my job is basically to point you to Jesus. It's to stir up within you a greater and greater appetite for Jesus. And leaders that are in this church, that's what your job is. Is that you would live your life in such a way... The people would go, man, I want what they've got. And you point them to Jesus. You just point them to him. And so led by Jesus Christ through a plurality of leaders known as elders and deacons. By the way, there are three authority structures that God has established for our protection and prosperity. You guys know what those three authority structures are? Go ahead and discuss it with the person next to you. I know that's a hard question, but you probably should know that. Three authority structures. Would you, how many would say government? A government would be one. Would you guys say a government? 13th chapter, that, is that God-ordained government? No? Let's revolt against the government then. No, that's actually 13th chapter of Romans says that government is instituted. And then you've got the home. That's another level of authority, home. And then how about church? The church is another level of three, three places of authority. And so it's our responsibility within our eldership. And, and by the way, I call them our, uh, our elders are often referred to, I, I refer to them as our uh, bouncers. Yes, like in a bar, bouncers. There are bouncers. And, and we deal with church discipline issues. And there are certainly, we've had to ask people to not come back to the church because of areas of, of controversy and issues. And that's healthy and that's for your protection. Um, so led by Jesus Christ to a plurality of leaders known as elders and deacons, selects leaders not on the basis of popularity, but on the basis of spiritual maturity. It has a criteria there, and I also gave you a further criteria for leadership. By the way, all of us should be aspiring for that level of, of leadership, regardless. This is maturity. This is called Christian maturity. Um, next point. By the way, the, the, the road to, to getting involved in leadership and leading a small group, which everybody should be kind of heading in that direction and aspiring towards that, would be take the game of life. If you've never gone through the game of life, I teach that. I love that class. It, te- it walks you through the five, 5G process. And then the slam class would be the next. And then, and then attend the meetings, like the meeting that's happening right now that many of you have missed. 
I'm just kidding. Just a joke. I'm glad you're here. So, um, so select leaders not on the basis of popularity. It was interesting that he said that he asked the people. He says, "So pick from among you. Look from when you're within your ranks." And that's how we've always gotten our elders. We start asking people within our church. Okay, well, who do you think? Do you see those eldership uh, qualifications? Because the quality of an organization is de- determined by the. The quality of its leaders and the quality of its leaders is determined by its qualifications. And so we, we live by what the Bible teaches as far as its qualifications. Here's, here's the next three points. And these are really important too. Ver, number six, not about form, style, but function, substance. It's interesting in verse five, it says here, what they, what they the leaders said... That is, their planned changes please the whole gathering. Why is that? Why were they so flexible to make these changes? Why is it important for you to be flexible in making changes? And why would, what would keep people from wanting to make changes? I'm so thankful for Desert Breeze because we made a lot of changes. You know, it's interesting because we're kind of a, a marketplace church. We've had, in 20 years, five different locations. In each location, God has used us in that particular venue, in that location, to draw people into the kingdom through that. And we don't know where we'll be next. It's just by God's guidance. But it really takes kind of a maverick kind of a person to follow us around to find out where we're going to meet next, you know, the next couple years. And to want that and that desire to even meet in a school where we've had an impact on this school through our, our young life, phenomenally. And so, but there's a flexibility. There's a, there's a new wineskin kind of a mindset. And I put that verse, those verses down. That if you have old wineskin, you can't pour new wine into old wineskin. Why? Because the, the old wineskin will burst. But God's wanting to do something new in our lives. And so we've got to stay somewhat flexible. And the way that you do that is that you recognize that a vital church is not about form, style, but function, substance. I love my mom. When my mom and dad first started attending Desert Breeze over in the boys' club, I remember asking her and having this conversation with her. I said, hey, mom, do you like, you like our music? And I didn't think that she would like our music. And she didn't like our music, okay? She, she really kind of didn't like the music. But this is what she said to me, and I'll never forget. She goes, I don't like the music, but I love the people who like the music. And you're re- reaching people that I love. And then she said, oh, by the way, I can worship I can worship with any kind of music. So I thought, hip-hop, mom? Hip-hop? She probably could. She probably could. Why? Because she's, her life is not about form. It's got to be a certain kind of music. No, she's just looking for the opportunity to celebrate her king. Does that make sense? See, and there's a difference between, there's a difference between form. And when, in our society, we tend to make form sacred rather than the function. And, and so the functions of the church are timeless, but the forms it takes are adaptable in the same way a house anywhere in the world functions to shelter inhabitants from the weather. But, but the form of a house varies from igloo to grass hut to mansion, but the function never changes. So your bigger question, what would you think is the biggest complaint that people give to our church when they come into Desert Breeze? What do you think it is? Pastor Ray wears shorts. How many knew that? You've heard me talk about that. Yeah, it's to this day, 
My goodness, it's a it's 100 billion degrees outside and they freak out over the fact that I wear shorts because it's cool. It's a little bit cooler. You hear my voice up here. I got a fan blowing on me. One of the practical reasons I do it is because it just keeps me cooler. And and I kind of need to do it actually. But but there's a lot of different practical reasons besides the fact that I wouldn't don't want to wear a robe and and uh, if I wore a robe, I'd be butt naked under that robe, I'll tell you. There's no way that I could wear a robe. And I, didn't, I wasn't really into the whole shirt and tie deal either because I wasn't raised in a church like that. But this is what I hear. I hear people that have come from more church, traditional, they go, I, we can't believe you'd wear shorts. Like, you should be more concerned about whether I teach the Bible and exalt Jesus and help people know Him. But then I hear from unchurched people, they go, this is the coolest church ever. The pastor wears shorts. So you got this, you got this contrast of perspectives that's, that's very unique. And so, you know, the people that don't like the fact that I wear shorts, they usually don't stay, and they don't. They're usually gone. I've had a lot of people come in here for a little while, and they, and they just said, oh, we just can't handle the fact that you wear shorts. And I go, wow, okay. I'm sure that I'll offend you in some other way, so... And so that's just the way it is. And so it's not about form. And these people, it's interesting, these people, they were, they were adaptable. They were open to new approaches. Here's what one commentator said. One of the reasons the Jerusalem church, church grew so fast and changed the first century world is that it was open to new approaches. These Christians were willing to do things in ways that had never been done before. They were comfortable with experimentation and risk. And so this was a whole new venture for them, and they were willing to go that. Here's the next one. It's a place where everyone is a minister. It's a place where everyone is a minister. By the way, here's what you should do. And I hope that this is what you would say. If people asked you, why do you go to Desert Breeze? This is what I would hope you say. It is a place that helps me to discover my deepest and most enduring happiness in God. Not from God, but in God. Did you know that, that your deepest and most enduring happiness is, is found not from God, but in God? Not from God. Not what you get from God, but in God, in God. So my, my goal, my desire, what you should be saying about Desert Breeze is that this is a place that helps me to find my deepest happiness in God. Because that's the best way to show His glory. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So when I pick a church, I'm looking for, like, does this place help stir up my appetite for God? Woo! That's what I want more than anything. Do they help me to focus on God or is it all about the guy up front or is it all about the church or building the building or doing this or doing that? No, no, no. That's not what Desert Breeze is about. We're a one-song band here. It's all about Jesus. It always has been about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus. As long as I'm a part of this church, focusing on Him, finding our deepest delight in Him. So why should you go to church? We go to church to maximize our happiness in God. And by the way, so this is, if, if you really want to maximize my joy, is that I'm not only finding incredible joy in God, but when you find your joy in God, that really maximizes my joy. When you find your deepest joy in Him, then I'm like, woo Yes, disciple! Because that's what a disciple is. That's a disciple. So, where are we? 
a place where everyone's a minister. So, so here's the deal with this. And I gave you a bunch of verses here. And we're almost out of time. Yes, we are. Quick illustration here. My wife broke her toe. And she hasn't been able to do any cooking, cleaning, nothing around the house. And I am sick and tired of it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, and actually, the only thing we haven't been able to do is hike the mountain. So we've been out on our tandem riding. But uh, I can one-up her because uh, on Friday, I was uh, with my grandsons. And uh, I put out the slip and slide. And uh, I had them uh, sliding on the slip and slide. And I thought, hey, dude, I can do that, man. And a um, 54-year-old man shouldn't do that. Because I told those boys, I said, hey, no, no, you, you need to extend off from the ground. Don't get on the slide because you'll slip. Slip and slide. And uh, guess what Grandpa did? He did just what he told the boys not to do. And I got out there and I fell back and dislocated this finger. You can probably see the discoloration on my finger. It popped out like this. And as I stood up, I go, oh, crap. I'm going to have to go to the ER, and that hurts like crazy. And I grabbed it and popped it back in place. And I go, nope, no ER today. (laughs) Praise God. I said, no more slip and slide for Grandpa. (laughs) So it gives a whole new meaning to this idea in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that when one member hurts, the whole hurts. You guys know what I'm saying? It actually says that in 12 chapter. So we are like members, whether we're hands and feet, ears, eyes, toes, we're all needed. We all play a part. The Bible talks about us all playing a part that you have. God wants you to give your time, talent, treasure to the greatest entity on this planet Earth for life change, and that's the local church. And so whether you're a hand or a mouth or ears or eyes or whatever, you're to give of your time, talents, and treasures to this Church, so that we can have through this synergy reach an ever increasing number of people with the gospel message. And it talks about when one hurts, they all hurt. Man, has that been hurting like crazy? And so I realized, wow, that kind of incapacitated me. You know, I can't bend it, so it makes me do really bad things with my hand. And uh, <laughs> so if I'm waving to you, don't take it personal. But I can't do good things with my hand either. I can't help my wife around the house. Sorry, honey. I'm kidding. It does. It incapacitates you. So when you look at any of us, all of us are needed. Listen, you are needed here. You're needed. Your faithful giving of your time, talent, treasure is needed here so that we can, we can get the gospel message out. When one person hurts, we all hurt. When you're holding back, it hurts all of us. That's the idea here. Here's number eight, a place that inspires and equips us to live for God's glory against all odds. Of course, the, defi- you know, the illustration is Stephen. Why did Stephen glow with the glory of God? Because he knew he had access to the very throne of God. Stephen is able to stand against the arguments, the false accusations, and the attacks of the world because he has the commendation of heaven through his faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe this is the epitome of of Christian mental health and wholeness, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, regardless of what's going down in our lives. Whether it's good, bad, whatever. Now... Wow, I'm almost breaking Donnie's record right now, okay? Remember a couple weeks ago when Donnie talked and he went all the way to the, almost to the next service? We're almost there. Would you stand with me for closing prayer?
Here's my last statement here. There's not a better life investment or more exciting adventure this side of eternity than being a part of a church like Desert Breeze that is beholding God's beauty, reflecting His glory, redeeming people's lives for all eternity. God, that's our heart. That's our heart. It's to make you... You look good. You, you do look good. It's just that we get cluttered with so many things in our lives. And, and, and God, we skew your ability to reflect through our lives. So God, we pray that indeed you would be most glorified in us as we are more and more satisfied in you. And we'd be a church known for that here in the community. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you.